0: mm Well, I hope your Thanksgiving was good and that you gave a lot of thanks and didn't gain too much weight. So, But that's what it's for. I don't want to talk about it. Yes, for giving thanks. Not for, was, you know, the voice in my head, I don't know, did, did, did they hear your voice in my head? Oh, he just said, and I said, that's what it's for. He said, you mean giving thanks or gaining weight? Well, yes. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful, and kindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your Spirit, they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. Lord, you taught the hearts of the nations by the light of the Holy Spirit. Grant us by that same Spirit to have right judgment in all things, and evermore to rejoice in his comfort through Christ our Lord. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. St. Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. Be our defense against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray, and do thou, O Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God, cast into hell Satan, and all the evil spirits who prowl about the world, seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Well, all right, let's open the big book on the coffee table. One, the Bible. I have an odd theory about Jerusalem. I really do. Um, and I, I really take this with a grain of salt. Um, this reading is about the mountain of the Lord's house. You know, that's what they call the temple. The Har the, the Harhabite, the mountain of the house. And uh, it is. Uh, today called the haram al sharif the Noble Sanctuary. Uh, it is dominated by the Dome of the Rock, which is not a mosque. It's a, uh, it's a, a memorial. But uh, the, the mosque on the, the haram al sharif is the Al-Aqsa, which is at the south part of the mosque. But I have this odd theory about Jerusalem. Uh, Jerusalem clearly is God's plan B in a way. Um, now, don't I love Jerusalem? I've been there an, quite a number of times, and I, I, one of my favorite places on planet Earth, is is a little bench in the Church of the Holy Sepulcher. So I'm not bad mouthing Israel and Jerusalem. So don't even go there. However, there's a very disturbing verse in the Old Testament in which the uh, um, David is bringing the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. It, it was lost. Uh, the sons of, of uh, Eli uh, they used it f- as a talisman. They used it superstitiously. Uh, su- uh, superstitiously, um, they were battled with the Philistines, and they decided to drag out the Ark of the Covenant, which was kept at Shiloh, because of course God would never, um, uh, uh, God would never ever. Um, allow them to lose a battle if the Ark of the Covenant was there. Well, they had lost the battle and the Ark of the Covenant. It was brought into Philistia on the coast of the Holy Land, and uh, it was put into, as a sort of prize of war, put into the temple of one of their gods, and uh, the statue of the God was knocked over, and just these bad things kept happening. And so they... Um, uh, um, they put it on a cart and said, "Let God take, let 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 the cart, let the ark of the covenant go where it will," and so it went up into the hills of uh, Judea. And uh, then uh, they told David, and David uh, removed the ark from Kiriath-Jarim. and there was great rejoicing. And he brought it to his new capital. Now Jerusalem was a, a city that belonged to a Canaanite group; they had not conquered it in the uh, They'd failed to conquer it because they did not obey the Lord uh, in, the, uh, in the conquest of the, the Holy Land in the times of Joshua. And it was still a Canaanite city, and it was uh, uh, populated by a group called the Jebusites. And the Jebusites, it was called Jebus, uh, the Jebusites thought that they were unconquerable Well, David conquered them, and because this was on the border of the north and the south, uh, like Washington D.C., it it was a city. It was territory that belonged to none of the tribes. So David made his capital there, and he wanted to bring the ark into his capital uh, when it was found when it was rescued from the uh, um, the possession of the of the Philistines. However, the the very um, worrisome text here is um, the the outburst against Uzzah. This is one of the most disturbing texts in the scripture. Let me It's in 2 Samuel 6, 8. Uh, one of the soldiers of David sees the ark about to fall off the cart that is taking it uh, from the house uh, or from Kiriath-Jarim uh, up to Jerusalem. And he is struck dead because only Levites and priests can touch the ark. Well, that's just not fair. That's just not right. Why would God do this? Well, remember, I'm always telling you, God has this problem. He thinks he's God. And uh, why You know, why would God let someone die? All of us die. Uh, God takes all of us eventually. But why, well, why did he take him in this sudden way when he was just trying to do a good thing? He wasn't trying to do a good thing. I mean, it seemed... And do a good thing. But this is the harebrained theory, which, I, please take this with a grain of salt, realizing that I may be and probably am wrong, but we'll still say it. David, like the sons of uh, Eli before him, wanted to use the ark for his own purposes. In Israel, there was a strict separation between the priesthood and the monarchy. Monarchs were never priests. Priests were never monarchs. It's a formula for disaster. The priests were overseen by the monarch and the monarch was overseen by the priests. It was what we would call a separation of powers. Now, David was beginning to arrogate to himself the privileges of priesthood. Just as Saul before, remember, Saul lost the crown because he wanted to make a sacrifice because he was going to lose his men if they didn't sacrifice to God early and then go on the war path. And uh, that's when Samuel the prophet said, no, you, you're going to lose uh, the crown because of this. And before that, the sons of Eli were abusing the ark and they lost it in battle and they were killed in the battle and their father had a heart attack and died. So you use the things of God for your own pleasure or power or, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Your own advantage. Uh, You do so at great risk. So Jerusalem, what what David did was he got the message. This is why David was a man after God's own heart. David was a man capable of repentance. He was a thug. He was an extortionist. He was uh, just a really, really bad human being on so many levels. And, you know, remember that unfortunate bit about uh, about Bathsheba and how he had Bathsheba's husband killed in a cover-up. I mean this is not a person you'd want to bring home to lunch how could he be a man after God's own heart well he was capable of repentance and when he realized what had happened to uh, to uh, um, uh, this soldier of his uh, Uzzah uh, he said whoa we're going to let the the, the ark stay right where it is until I know that God wants to bring it up here and um, it stayed in the house of Obed-Edom and um then God prospered Obed Edom and David realized it's all right so he brought the ark in with great rejoicing and Jerusalem then became the uh, the center of of the 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 Israelite religion that's but that's why he wanted it I think in the first place to make his to give his capital legitimacy when when Constantine uh, the emperor uh, declared Christianity uh, legal and in effect the state religion, uh, he built his new capital, and he wanted to gather all the relics of Christianity into Constantinople. And he wanted the, the, this was the new Rome, and so he wanted the Bishop of Rome to move. And the Bishop of Rome said, no, I don't think so. And the story that I heard, and I, I should have researched it, but it's still a good story, that uh, the, the when they wanted to move the relics of Peter and Paul from Rome to Constantinople, because it was the new Rome, the Pope said, oh, no, you can't do that. The last person who touched them dropped dead, just like uh uh Uzzah in in in, in the, the old testament. So they're still there and the papacy maintained its uh, independence with much struggle from uh the world around it. And the world is always trying to control the papacy. The what is fashionable, people who are fashionable are always trying to uh to control the papacy and this is from its beginning until now. So um This is my my theory, that Jerusalem is God's plan B. But you know the amazing thing about God? He works with plan B in my life, in your life, in the life of the church, in the life of Jerusalem. And this, this statement... That the the mountain of the Lord's house is established as the highest mountain, all nations shall stream toward it. Go to the airport there, and you will be astonished as you watch the world pass by. That's why I I said there's a little bench right in front of the church, the right in front of the tomb of Christ. I could sit there all day long and just watch the world go by. The world goes there to pray. I mean, it is the religious center of of most of the people on the face of the earth in one way or other. So, um that promise is fulfilled come let us climb the lord's mountain and go to the house of god the god of jacob uh from zion shall go forth instruction the word of the lord from jerusalem that's what we christians believe exactly what happened but then the second part is he will judge between the nations they shall beat their swords into plowshares oh house of jacob come let us walk in the light of the lord let us pray that that next prophecy is fulfilled um and uh, then the psalm is about Jerusalem. Jerusalem is built as a city. The tribes go up to it uh, and um, pray for the peace of Jerusalem, which we certainly do. Let's go to the gospel really quickly here. Um, this is a fascinating passage in scripture. This is a centurion. And a centurion, is he, is the, uh, um, he was the backbone of the Roman army. Uh, it meant commander of a hundred and there were higher ranks of Centurion who had um, um, uh, more authority there was the the uh, Primus I think it's called the Primus pill uh, Primus pilus, first spear he was like a commander of centurions and uh, the general uh, would call the centurion into his tent the, before the battle or to the uh, to uh, uh, an area in the camp, and he would explain the battle plan to the centurions, and they were the ones who made it happen. Um, centurions could walk into an assembly of people and just calm it. They they like they said the the Canadian Mounties used to be able to do. So these are great men, and Romans did not value humility. That's interesting when you meet someone who is not from a Christian culture, even if they are Christian. In my experience, so this is not universal, certainly, but in my experience, culturally, humility is often not a great virtue. Uh, We're so accustomed, those of us who are raised in a a Christian or post-Christian culture, to thinking that humility is a good thing. To be the common man is a good thing. I don't know that that's a universal idea that, that Romans valued what they called gravitas and dignitas. Gravitas meant seriousness. The Roman man was serious, gravity. And his gravitas conferred dignitas on him, worthiness. And if you did not have gravitas and dignitas, you were nobody. And if you did, it was expected that you would rise in the Roman bureaucracy, uh, the Roman governmental system. There was no no uh, idea that oh I'm just nobody yeah you're nobody get out of my way so this centurion he he humbles himself before this this Jewish rabbi and he says Lord you don't have to come to my house to cure my slave Uh, um, I'm a man subject to authority. Uh, My soldiers obey me. And so just speak the word. Jesus, I think, is linking obedience and faith in this story. People who say you don't have works, don't count. You don't have to do a thing to go to heaven. If I don't obey you, it's because I don't trust you. You see, I look at the Ten Commandments and well, there's a couple of them that I could do without. Um, but the Lord says, no, no, if you do this thing, it's like eating poison. You know, the 10, we should call the 10 stop signs. I mean, I always joke that, uh, I should be grateful for every stop sign. I see if it weren't for stop signs, I'd be roadkill. Well, the 10 commandments are like little poison stickers. Don't commit adultery. It's going to kill you. Don't steal. It's going to kill you. These are warnings from the Lord about how we, uh, Uh, risk everything by violating our nature and God's nature, these Ten Commandments. So don't go there. Don't do that. The Ten Commandments are grace. They are grace. And the only reason I don't obey them is because, I don't agree with God on this. I don't trust him. He's crazy. Stealing is a fine thing to do. Adultery is just, no, adultery, adultery is okay. I mean, in my case, it's okay. And I I mean, on your, that's nonsense. It's poison in my case. It's poison in your case. And to say that it's not, to say that God is wrong, is to not trust him. The reason I don't obey God is because I don't really trust him. I'm not really convinced that sin is that bad for me. Well, guess what? God has his ways of letting us find out that it is. All right. That said, we're going to take a break. We will come back uh, with um, uh, mass hysteria. Oh, boy. The Relevant Radio Studio Line is sponsored by Catholic Order of Foresters. Information about employment opportunities and their flexible premium life insurance plans available at relevantradio.com/forester. Slow down, if you move too fast. You got to make the
1: morning last. Just kicking down on the cobblestones, looking for fun. And
0: yes. The yes, yes, yes. Yes, I'm not making this up. That was actually played at Mass when I was in seminary. <clears throat> you know, one wonders what we were thinking. <laughs> well, that's easy to answer. We weren't thinking. Um the uh it's just incredible that that we just uh, um um we really weren't, we weren't thinking. Um, I, I, I was, why am I telling all these horror stories? Because they explain so much. And this is a real horror story. That has to do with Thanksgiving. One of my predecessors in one of my parishes, which I will not name, he is no longer uh, in the active ministry. But he, um, um, <sighs> He cleared out the altar in the church. It was just a wooden movable altar, (laughs) cleared out the altar and set up a bunch of tables and served a huge turkey dinner in the sanctuary. And then when the dinner was over, he um, uh, cleared the remnants away and said mass in the middle of this dinner. I'm not making this up, Um, because, of course, that's the way the early Christians would have done it. So often we think that, well, we're doing what the early Christians would have done. Much of the liturgical movement was an attempt to return to the practices of the early church. And as I pointed out the other week, we have no action. As far as I know, and I would like to be wrong about this, But we have no documentary evidence, I mean documents, outside of Scripture, and even, I think, inside of Scripture, that clearly say that there was singing in Mass. I believe there was, uh, because these were Jews, and they sang the Psalms. But uh, I quoted uh, the text of uh, Pliny the Younger's letter regarding Christians uh, to... um, his letter to Trajan where he says he doesn't say they always translate they sang a hymn. It doesn't say that. It says they re, they said a, a, a religious poem, a poem, a carmen. It can mean song, but its it's, it's primarily a poem. Uh, it sound and they did it alternately. It sounds exactly like what we do with the Psalms. However, it's all speculation, and the thing is that just because something is ancient doesn't mean it's good. You know, there are lots of ancient things in the church, like Montanism, (laughs) the followers of Montanus the priest, who believed that that the New Jerusalem had descended from heaven and was secretly disguised as a field outside Papusa, Turkey, and he was the incarnation of the Holy Spirit, and two ladies who hung around with him were his prophetesses. That's very ancient. It was also judged by the, the bishops as nuts. The voice might just remind me of Arianism. That goes back a ways, too. You see, I think that the, the case can be made that you look at the, at the names mentioned in the canon, and I think the case can be made that the Roman Mass was pretty much in place by 250 A.D. And this is an ancient thing, but the liturgical movement... Uh, caused a lot of strange things to be done and our informality regarding the liturgy and our sentimentality about the liturgy in other words well this is great because I like it Um, well that comes from that that false that idolization that false perception of the early church that it was what I would like it to be if they were Jews they were pretty liturgical Jews have a very structured liturgy, and they they had a sense of liturgy. Uh, Liturgy is by its very nature structured and not spontaneous. Um, It just is. So uh, it's the covenant. That's all it is. No more, no less. It is the renewal, the unbloody renewal of the covenant of Calvary. So I just thought I'd share that with you. It might explain why we're so wacky and... uh, we need to stop being quite so wacky and doing things because, well, that must've been what the early church did. Show me first. All right, let's go to letters. Now I have a letter here that father Brankin forwarded to me, which of course I cannot find, but it's about my dislike of incense. Nonsense. I like incense a lot. And, and just because I think maybe the use of it should be limited doesn't mean I don't like it. Uh, uh, this person sent a picture to, uh, who's actually someone who i rather like and esteem, uh, a real, a very good Catholic, but she likes a lot of incense. And she forwarded a picture of clouds of incense, uh, And she says, ah, that's the way to do it. Well, maybe, maybe not. Um, I always say God has a very good sense of smell, but again, my rule of thumb is why do you want to use a lot of incense? Why? Well, it's real good theater. My point exactly. This isn't theater. The altar isn't a stage. It's a place of sacrifice and incense has always been used traditionally in sacrifice. Of the four Masses I said on a Sunday, I used incense at two of them. Now, my point, my whole point in these harangues that I've been doing is, why are you doing this? Why? Well, it's good. It's what the early church did. Are you sure? Well, it's, it's God really likes incense. Maybe he does. Uh, maybe he doesn't. Um, in, well, Father Rankin said, well, incense, these symbols are really for us. Yes, they are. And, um, you know, in every congregation, you have people who love lots of incense and people who think it could gag a goat. And you need to make a compromise because the thing that's really pleasing to the Lord is our love for one another. So being sensitive to other people in the as a congregant is very important. Being theatrical is not. So, uh, you know, the symbol of incense is the prayers of the saints rising up to God. It is uh, rise us to the temple. Uh, that's why I use it and like to use it. But on the other hand, if somebody goes crawling out of the church on all fours, <laughs> that actually happened in the seminary once. We had an opening uh, ceremony, in which everyone was to come up and put a pinch of incense on the a great charcoal, uh, charcoal grill. And I'm amazed they didn't have any a statue of julius caesar behind it but we were all to put our pinch of incense and pretty soon the entire building was so packed with incense people were quite literally crawling out of the chapel on hands and knees gasping for air i I was lucky i was able to get out a fire escape door um Then I also remember a, a grand event in a hall, uh, 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 that uh, a conference where uh, the procession is waiting in one of the smaller conference rooms to go into the big assembly, and uh, uh, some real lover of incense just stoked up the coals. And, well, all the fire alarms went off, and we had to vacate the space. So incense, God has a perfectly good sense of smell, and if you're doing this for God... Good. If you're doing it for us, well, why are you doing it for us? For the theater of it or because it is a a means of prayer for you? So just a thought on that. So uh, that's the whole thing. Got to ask questions. All right. Now, I got one here that um, is um, uh, somebody called in. last week saying why they never talk about male virginity and you know i've been thinking about this and i got a letter from john uh who a correspondent uh and he he um he spent some time in in a monastery and uh, they're always talking about male virginity in in the readings and john the evangelist for instance so i i think maybe we just don't notice it so much and, and i thought i would add that to the the um the whole um, mix. This is something from Jennifer, um, and uh, um, there, there are. Um, she's talking about Hillsong. Um, is it okay to listen to the band Hillsong as a Catholic? Well, I looked it up, and if it's associated with Hillsong Church, that's an Australian megachurch that has become a worldwide movement. And I think you do need to be careful of some of the, the theology. Um, the The megachurch um, idea uh, is they're a Pentecostal or charismatic t- megachurch, and um, to me. The megachurch uh, is kind of the opposite of Pentecostal. Um, it's, again, it's, it's very much into a stage and a performance, that sort of thing. You know, if anybody wants to learn about Pentecostalism, a very, very fine uh, movie is The Apostle. Is that Robert Duvall? Uh, yeah, Robert Duval, It is the best defense of, of uh, traditional Pentecostalism I know. It's about a guy who runs a megachurch and he falls afoul of everything, and he goes back to his Pentecostal roots, and it it, it really is uh, excellent um, in its defense of, of real Pentecostalism. And the idea in Pentecost, the real idea of Pentecost, is smaller is better. You know, the disciples and the women and maybe a hundred people, it sounds like, uh, they gathered together for prayer and they did so for nine days and that's where the church began. That's not a real large group if you're going to change the world um, and they did. so. You know, the, the whole thing about Pentecostal spirituality is the idea of hearing from God. Most people think that, well, they define charismatics as people who think God is deaf. And practically speaking, that is the current definition. But the real thing, which I remember, uh, is all about hearing from God. It's about listening much more than talking. Uh, so, you know, I would, Hillsong is, you know, I'm sure the songs are fine. It's nice music, but um, there's also a lot of nice Catholic music that, that you're not going to have any, any doctrinal problems with. Um, all right. Uh, you know, I don't want to uh, badmouth a, a friend in the Lord. And, you know, it's not bad music. Uh, but I would be a little... You know, if you're well-founded in Catholic doctrine, you know, because uh, music is very important. It imports ideas right into the soul. That's how Arianism spread through the world. Arius was a priest in Alexandria, and they said he would go down to the docks and teach all the sailors all these sea chanties with heretical lyrics. And, uh, and it went through the world. So... Uh, <laughs> you know the voice of my head singing gather us in and you know well now you can hear plenty of heretical music right in the catholic church so six of one half a dozen of the other just learn your doctrine all right now let's see i've got a letter here from a choir member who is to remain anonymous i've been a lot of church choirs over the years and i've noticed at almost every mass every church i've sang in the choir is in the front Newer churches are built without choir lofts in the back of the church. And even the most older churches that I've been to, the choir loft in the back of the church goes unused or is used for storage. This is a real insight, uh, anonymous choir member, that, that, um, you know, well, the performers have to be on the stage. I mean, why would you put the performers where people can't see them? Bingo. Mass, this is the theme I'm grinding these days. Mass is not an entertainment Here's one. Um, <laughs> uh, um, yesterday, you said you never heard the Our Father with guitar. I know this might make you cringe, but I played this attached version. I, I, I have to take it back. This is from Joanne. I... Played the our, our Father, Our Father, Who Art? That's a nice guitar version, the Echo Our Father. What I was saying, what I meant to say was the traditional chant, Our Father, accompanied by a guitar. It somehow changed the whole thing and uh, made it unchanty. I don't know. Maybe it's just my prejudice, but that was what I meant. But yes, I have heard really odd versions of the Our Father played on the guitar. So there you go. All right. Let's see here. Um, this is from, Dan from hallelujah, from hallelujah, from Honolulu say I'm getting ready for cold weather, Dan. All right. Um, can you talk about keeping and fostering hope? I know that's more than wishful thinking. It's a trusting dependence on God. How does it differ from faith? Well, Dan, faith, uh, um, I think is about the present and hope is about the future. And it isn't the future in this world, as I understand it, and again, I may be wrong, the virtue of hope is about our being fixed on, on heaven when we die. You know, it doesn't take us out of living in the world. We live by faith in this world, by trusting God. Remember, translate the word trust. But, but trusting God for the future uh, is, is what hope is about. And that's primarily a virtue that keeps us focused on the life of heaven that that um, if I'm not happier, I'll never be happy. No, have hope. You'll be happy in heaven. Uh, if I'm not loved here, I'll never be loved. No, you'll be loved in heaven. To have That virtue of hope keeps us focused on the real world and not on the world in which we live. So I hope that helps a little, Dan. God bless and, and thanks for listening. All right, let us uh, go to a break. We'll come back with a truly amazing word of the day. And, uh, um... Then we'll take your calls at 888 914 888 We'll be right back. The Relevant Radio studio line is sponsored by Catholic Order of Foresters. Information about employment opportunities and their flexible premium life insurance plans available at relevantradio.com forester.
1: I'll be no stranger there I'll be no stranger there When all the saints come from the grave, I'll be no stranger there. I'll be no stranger there
0: I'll be no well <laughs> at least no stranger than you are now. I'm just kidding. All right, let's go to the word of the day. In the gospel today, Jesus says, Uh, Well, uh, um, the the centurion says, come here, and he comes, do this, and he does it. Just say the word, and my servant will be healed. Uh, Which is, I wonder what that centurion would think, or does think, feasibly from his throne in heaven. Uh, The tradition is that this is Cornelius. I don't know if it is or not. But, uh, well, uh, to think that his words would be repeated 2,000 years later by... Well, maybe close to a billion people. All right, uh, th- that's amazing. However, the thing that amazes me about this passage is the word amaze. Um, Jesus hears this and he says, he heard this, he was amazed and said to those following with him, following him, I say to you, no one in Israel has found such faith. Now, I looked up the word amazed, and it is the word that I thought is from the verb thaumazo. Uh, What's Thaumazo? It means to be, to marvel, Uh, um, uh, to be awestruck. This is the son of God who knows all things we would think. Well, remember that he laid down the rights and prerogatives of, of his divinity in heaven, as we read in Philippians, the second chapter. And he knew only what the father was pleased to tell him in his humanity, his perfect humanity. And so he could be amazed, but he's still God. And the thing that is amazing is that we can amaze God. And what amazes God? Faith or the lack of it. You know, that that it means to thought. I remember I, I met, uh, he was, when I was studying Hebrew and I was uh, working in summer, I would go to this convenience store and there was a guy who was clearly an Israeli. And uh, so it turned out he was the son of the Israeli consul to Chicago. This was, oh, 50, 60 years ago, I forget, 50 years ago. And, uh, um, uh, he suddenly had to go back to, to Israel. And so there went my summer Hebrew lessons, but we went out for a cup of coffee and, uh, um, It's sort of a farewell. It really was a cup of coffee. Do a farewell cup of coffee. And uh, he said, this Christian stuff, you really believe it? And I said, yeah, I really do. And I went through the the story of Christ and salvation. And I got to, and he promised to send the Holy Spirit. And then this Israeli Israeli guy said, yeah, and he never came. They've been waiting for the Messiah a long time. I said, no, he came. The guy was thunderstruck. He was, his jaw dropped. The Holy Spirit actually arrived this is what Thalmazo mean. So Jesus was thunderstruck at the faith of the centurion. He was also thunderstruck, the same exact word in Mark, the sixth chapter, uh, the sixth the verse in which we read uh, that Jesus could not. And the word here is he was unable to perform any miracles there except to lay his hands on a few of the sick and heal them. To me, that's astonishing right there, that my lack of faith is able to hinder God. God is so humble that he will allow allow me to to tie his hands, uh, which, of course, he did on the cross. And he was amazed at their unbelief. So, and that is exactly the same as faith. And the word amazed, it's the same word here. Jesus is amazed when you have faith and amazed when you don't have faith. To me that's that's really something to think about, that I have the ability to may, amaze God for ill. Isn't that something? God can be amazed by human beings when they have such faith as the centurion that they will obey him unquestioningly, and when they have such lack of faith that he cannot move in their life. To think about it, faith or lack of faith amaze God. I think that that is really something. So there you go. All right, eight 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 nine one four nine one four nine. Eight 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 nine one four nine one four nine. Ah, the phone is ringing. we oui, oui. what's the phone? <laughs> what was on the phone?
1: Bill from Rhode Island, are you with us? Uh, I'm with you, Father. Uh, a couple of. Okay. let to read a couple of lines from the wedding feast at Cana. All set? I'm all set, yep. Okay. Uh, This is from a couple of lines from the wedding feast at Cana. It says, When the wine ran short, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, how does your concern affect me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the service, Do whatever he tells you. So my question is, why did Jesus honor Mary's request if he, if he didn't want to reveal himself at that time? And the other thing is, why did Mary re- get the ball rolling in the first place when it, apparently he, didn't want to re- he did not want to reveal himself? Well, you got to ask,
0: why didn't he want to reveal himself? And I, I used to think, well, you know, he knew that this what was coming up. He didn't want to go there. Um, you know, he had some disciples. I'm sure the Blessed Mother was a good cook, and uh, then someone said, "No, that's not the reason. That he loved her so much that he knew that if he started his public ministry, it would end in his death and in the breaking of her heart. So he didn't. And what he says is is that that text always sounds so brutal the way they translate it in English. He says, "What is it to thee and me, my lady?" Uh, in other words, he's identifying her in his ministry in a way. It, it's literally, uh, what is it to thee and to me, my lady? Uh, um, he's being very loving to her. And um, what she's saying is, it's, it's time to start your ministry. I maintain that you know, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. So did she. She had one child, Jesus. And at the wedding feast of Cana, He gave. She gave her son to the world. Most appropriate in a, in a wedding feast where the parents would give their children to one another. So uh, um, he's loving her, and she's loving him. That's, that's, that's why it wasn't, it wasn't kind of, it wasn't an argument. I really believe that, that I forget who it was pointed out to me that, that no, no, he he didn't, he didn't hesitate to begin his public ministry because once you work one miracle, miracle, it's over. Build a better mousetrap. They'll beat a path to your door. You work a miracle. You, you'll have a line there. Um, you know, that uh, he really, I think, wanted to spare her in his, in his humanity. Uh, so I don't know if that answers the question for you.
1: Well, I, I kind of think that, that Mary is, they say the, the quickest, fastest way that Jesus is to Mary because he loves her so much and she yeah. must love him so much. And yeah. I guess this is an example of that. Although yeah, it, it, it is, a it crazy. is,
0: but I think it's also an example of their collaboration in ministry when he says, what is it to thee and to me? he's not saying what is this to me he says to to you and to me we're in this together ma you know it's a very beautiful story so i i think you're right in that that it's a matter of of love and and you know the communion of saints of which mary is the she is the saint par excellence the queen of saints um, uh, the saints intercede for us as Jesus would have them do. So, well, thanks for listening. Thanks for calling in. And I hope that sheds, well, it's, it's a theory. <laughs> Take it with a grain of salt. Who have we got now, dear voice in my head? Steve from Duncan in Pennsylvania. Are you with us? Yes, Father. Good. I what am. can I do for you?
1: Good. Well, um, when I was reading the, the gospel this morning and uh, journaling before I went to mass, And reading the Roman centurion, I was speculating could he possibly have been uh, St. Loginus, uh, who was a Roman centurion who pierced Christ's side with a lance? And you may have answered uh,
0: when you you said he I've never thought about that.
1: Um, Well, there's a
0: tradition that he was St. Cornelius, but it's not an established tradition, certainly not the doctrine of the church, I don't think. Let me look up, um, uh, I, I need to look that up. Hold on. You will hear clicking, <laughs> and you will hear my my headphone brushing against my microphone. Let's see here. Uh, truly, good grief. Uh, okay, got to click there, because that's a question that's interesting, truly. Okay, that's the... <sighs> All right. Okay, now, This is what's known as radio sarcasm. All right. Um, uh, Yes, that's true. Um, When the centurion, there was a centurion, uh, um, uh, was there uh, uh, with him who were guarding. um, Wait, 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 wait. No, no, no. Um, When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake uh, and all that had happened, they were terrified and said, truly, this was the son of God. Uh, so yeah, that, that he was a centurion too. Um, yeah, I'd never noticed that he was a centurion. So it, it, that may be true also. It may be St. Longinus because there's no hard and fast, uh, teaching the church on that it doesn't identify them. So that's interesting. I'd, I'd never noticed that it was a centurion who was guarding the execution of Jesus. makes perfect sense. So, well, thanks for causing me to wonder. And um, see, there you go. You've stumped the Reverend Know-It-All. Any other questions? You got any softballs? Well,
1: boy, well, I really love the, uh, the, 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 your statement that, uh, that Mary also gave her only yeah. son. Yeah,
0: isn't that amazing? She had one son. Yeah. And I I really believe that she's the one who said, son, it's it's time, you know, and he didn't want it, not because he was afraid, but because he didn't want to hurt her. So, yeah, it is beautiful. Well, thanks for calling in and thanks for listening. God bless. Who we got now? Dear voice in my head. Brian from Little Rock, what can I do for you?
1: Thank you, uh, good father, for taking my call. Thank you for your priesthood. So I have a question about, I see at communion, some people will go up and get on their knees to receive communion. Some stand. I know as a kid, mm-hmm. we would go to the communion rail and kneel, but yeah. what what's the proper form or the way to receive communion? Should, should we be kneeling? Should we be standing? Well,
0: the proper form is to do it the way your bishop has asked. The usual form these days is to stand. Uh, but it is it is, permissible, is permitted to kneel. The Vatican has said that clearly, that you may kneel for communion. Uh, but the usual way to do it is to stand. And if your bishop says something particular, you obey the bishop, because obedience is pleasing to God. Um, myself, I, I did some research on when that standing started, and I think it actually started in 1962 at a Eucharistic Congress in Seattle, and the reason that they had people stand was it would be faster. And I think that's a really lousy reason to do something. Um, the, uh, uh, my own, If I could restore anything, uh, it would be people kneeling at the communion rail for communion, not because it's a more dignified position nat- necessarily, uh, but because it is really something for children to see their parents kneeling, waiting quietly for something. You know, now you come up, you get your poker chip, and you go back to your seat. Um, to me, that that uh, a person who knows what the Eucharist can, can do that very reverently. However, it's not happening reverently. Kids are not being catechized by it; they are grabbing the host and running down the aisle, and uh, the celebrant of the mass has no way to ensure that the host isn't desecrated. And that's a that's a, to me that's an important thing. So, but. Again, obey your bishop because obedience is pleasing to God. So, um, does that answer the question for you?
1: Well, it does. A, one little follow-up: What's your feeling about receiving on the hand versus on the tongue?
0: Well, it's similar It's 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 similar. It's similar. Um, that that uh, I don't find the tongue a more reverent part of the body than the hand. And I think it is very clear that in the early church communion was in the hand, though people will argue that. But I think you look at the early church fathers. Uh, but again, I think it's good good catechesis for children to see something unusual about it. But I, you know, I, when I talk about my preference for kneeling, uh, though. I, I when I receive communion when I go to mass I stand, you know I don't get on my knees I, I stand because that's that's the prevailing custom in most places I am, unless I'm at a, an old an old mass Tridentine mass. Um, uh, so I'm not I'm not sure that that uh, uh, you know to me that's not. Um, uh, top priority uh the kneeling the kneeling to me oddly enough is more important now the, the communion in the hand in the reformation uh, protestants rigorously forbade communion uh, on the tongue because it echoed the belief that the priest's hands were somehow sacred and they did not believe that there was a sacrament of ordination so it had great meaning in the reformation which i don't think it has now so hope that helps um i don't i think we've only got a minute left because i talk so much but uh um you know i think all of these things that we argue about communion in the hand communion standing communion kneeling you gotta understand that that if you do these things with anger they're not pleasing to god if you do them out of love they are and if you're kneeling, uh, draws attention to you and takes it away from the Lord. You know, I, 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 I've I, seen people sort of flop down on the ground and, and I trip the person by. It, and that's not loving. You know, um, we're thinking about these things and the church is always growing. And I, I have opinions, but, you know, what you do, do for the sake of love and not for the sake of polemic. All right. That said, for the sake of love, Drew is coming up and he never is polemical.